You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. (laughs) Some of you all getting into that song now. All right. Welcome you to Kingsway Christian Church. We are in a series studying the book of Genesis. But before we get into that for just a minute, uh, I just thought I would warm us up with a little bit of a story about myself. So for those of you who haven't been here for very long, you maybe don't know this story and there's a long version. I'm gonna give you the short version. Roughly 33 years ago, uh, I was showing off at an after football party and figured out I could do a split. Now to date myself, this would have been back in the... uh, vanilla ice kind of stage of things. You know, I had MC Hammer pants, not gonna lie. Um, they were pretty cool. Anyway, that being said, you can Google that later if you're under 30 and, uh, or don't watch VH1 ever. Or don't know what VH1 is. Okay, so anyway, moving on. Anyway, so uh, I'd figured this out and, and I'd started to kind of do some splits and, and with one of my friends, I made up a dance and the eighth grade dance came around, it was February and uh, we ended the dance where I leapfrogged over him and I landed in a split, except for this time, something was different. When I landed in a split, my hamstring pulled my pelvic bone in two like that. I don't know how well you could see that. And uh, part of my growth plate popped off and flew over to the side over here and reattached itself, kind of sitting off on the side. And uh, it was extremely painful. I was out of school for 60 days, had to sit on a donut when I went back to school, ended up with a tutor for a season there. It was really, really bad. Just to give you an idea, so dramatically changed my life physically. In seventh grade, in track that season, I had finished no less than second or third in every single race. I never won, but I was always second or third. It took me until my junior year of high school to get back to the same times that I was running in seventh grade. And uh, that's when it dawned on me that my athletic career was over. It probably wasn't going anywhere anyway. When you're five foot eight and your best event is the mile, it's not a good sign. But anyway, that being said, it was a very difficult, difficult, painful season for me. And I still deal with it today. I was training for a half marathon last year when I did something, I still don't know what, I did something, and this past year has been really, really painful, really painful. Yesterday was a really, really bad day. And I took something called a meloxicam, and I tried Tylenol, and nothing has taken the edge off. I sat on ice, and just about every 10 minutes, for random reasons, it literally would feel like someone is stabbing me right back here. And then it would go away after 30 seconds, and I'd be fine. I could do everything, and then it would come back, and then it would go away, and then it would come back all day yesterday. And this is life now for me. And I say that not to tell you some weird story about your pastor. I say that because it always leads to this question. How do I make sense of God when I'm suffering? So here's the thing. Today's message, we're going to look at a guy named Joe, Joey, if you're really good friends with him. But we'll just call him Joseph because that's what the Bible calls him. And Joseph goes through a prolonged season of suffering. And it leaves you asking this question over and over again. Questions like, God, where are you? Can I trust you? Are you faithful? What if my pain never goes away? Now, I have friends in the church who are in a prolonged season of suffering, and it may be physical for some of them. In fact, I talked to some of them after the last service and hugged them. I said, I hope I didn't say anything too terribly difficult or painful. And they're like, no, I needed to hear it. Some of you, though, uh, you're in a, coming into a season or you know a season's coming. And uh, this is one of those messages that if you're in it, you know this is for you. If you're not in it, you're just gonna wanna tuck this one away because you just never know when you're gonna wanna pull out something you heard today. Or maybe there's somebody else in your life that's going through it and this is perfect timing. 
So in case you haven't been with us, let me bring you up to speed real quick on some major characters. There's lots of names in the book of Genesis. I'm just gonna summarize a few for you. And the first one is a guy named Jacob. Now, Jacob falls in love with a woman. Her name is Rachel. But when it comes time to marry her after working for her for seven years for her dad, her dad tricks Jacob and gives him Leah. And that's super important because Rachel and Leah are sisters and dad marries off Leah before Rachel, even though Jacob worked for Rachel. So he gets Rachel also and works another seven years. It brings up lots of great questions about polygamy and what the Bible thinks. And I touched on it just briefly weeks ago. So I don't have time to go there now. Now, That creates a problem in Jacob's family because Jacob ends up having all these kids, but he doesn't treat them the same. So the first thing I need you to see is Jacob is tricked into marrying two sisters and that scriptures tell us he obviously loved Rachel more than Leah. That's a setup for the story today because as a result, he's got kids coming from Rachel. At this point, the story has only got one. His name is Joe, Joseph. Leah's got a bunch of kids. Then both of them, because they're in some arms race to see who can have more kids, both Leah and Rachel give Jacob their servant to have children with them also. So he's got two wives, two what you would maybe call concubine, for lack of a better phrase, and he's got lots and lots of kids. And that creates a problem because the one kid, Joseph, he loves more than all the others. And he treats the children of Rachel differently and better than the children of Leah. In fact, we saw this last week. If you remember, if you were here, uh, Jacob goes, God sends Jacob back home to, to deal with his brother Esau, who he's lied and deceived and tricked out of the blessing and the inheritance and all the things. And when he's on his way back, he puts himself at the front of this line, and then he puts his children in least favorite to most favorite order. And at the very back of the line is the youngest, little Joey and Rachel. And that's important because he literally says, if my brother attacks us, perhaps my wife, like all the, the, the cattle and the animals and the workers go first. But then if he attacks to kill me, maybe the back of the line will get away first. He's literally prioritizing which child he hopes escapes most likely. And it's Joe. And that's the setup, not the only one, the setup for what happens next. And here's what happens next. Now Israel, Israel is another word for Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel and that's how we get the name for the nation of Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. That whole thing I did on Rachel and jealousy, it is playing out right here, except for this time, it's Leah's kids, and they hate good old Joe. But things get worse for Joe, because Joe, he's a young man, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's a young man, and all of a sudden, he has a dream. In fact, verse five, it says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, note to self, if you ever have this kind of dream, you should probably not tell your siblings about it. It's just probably a good idea that you keep that to yourself. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And then it says, and then they hated him all the more. As you can imagine, not only is he's daddy's favorite, but he's actually literally having dreams about how he's better than us and we're all gonna bow down to him. Gets better though. Then he had another dream. 
and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, at this point, he has 11 brothers, 11 brothers. So mom, dad, and brothers are all bowing down. So now it's not just the bros. Now it's also mom and dad. In fact, says when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Oh, I wish I had more time. I don't for now, but I will say this real quick. Ready? Real quick. Every dream you have is not from God. I've had some really weird dreams in my lifetime. Those are not from God. But occasionally, the scriptures do say that God will speak to us through dreams. In fact, the prophet Joel says, in the last days, which we are living in, your old men will dream dreams and your young men will have visions. This is picked up by the book of Acts, affirming that when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, that people had dreams and visions. And we see it throughout scripture. God sometimes communicates something profound through dreams and visions. And I do believe he still does this today. Now, what you don't need to do is wake up in the middle of the night and wonder if every dream you had is from God. What you should do is if you ever get a dream that just feels more real than like dreamy, you probably should test it with somebody godly or spiritual. And that doesn't mean your best friend who likes to smoke things and tell you he's godly and spiritual. Probably somebody who's trained in these things. Somebody like myself or one of our staff members. Now, that being said, I don't always know. I've had some dreams where I wake up, I text somebody, say, hey man, I had a dream about you last night. Are you and your wife okay? Are you doing all right? And I've never had anybody go, oh wow, how'd you know? Occasionally though, I do wonder, like, was that real? And did they tell me, were they honest? However, I just know that sometimes God chooses to communicate this way. And we're gonna move from that. And you may have lots of questions. That's fine. Email bcadwell at kingswaychurch.org. All right, now. <laughs> me too, I'll put it that way. All right. So what's happening here, though, is, is Joseph, instead of keeping it to himself, he tells other people and it creates a problem because they're angry at him. And as the story progresses, what happens next is one day the brothers are out working in the field and they didn't stay in that field for whatever reason being. They took the, the, the animals to another field. And Jacob goes, you know what, Joseph, why don't you go out and check on your brothers? Which, again, it just shows that daddy is creating a scenario where the youngest is his favorite and he uses him to check up on the others. So he goes to check up on the others. And when they get close, the brothers are sitting around stewing about it, and they're angry, and they get cocked a plan to kidnap, beat up, and kill Joseph. As everything unfolds, one of the brothers talks him out of that, and they end up beating him up and throwing him into a cistern, like a thing that would hold water. And it was empty, the scriptures say, so it's not like they threw him into a little swimming pool. They threw him in there and they waited while they decided what to do. Well, another brother's like, I got an idea, these, these traveling traders came through, and they said, I got an idea. Why don't we sell him to these traders? So they stripped him of his technicolor dream coat. They ripped it up and they put animal's blood on it and they sold him as a slave. They took the coat back to dad. And they said, dad, it's tragic. We found this and Joseph has been killed. And dad is grieving and he mourns and it's terrible. And we'll look a little bit more into that, just a little bit more into that next week. But consequently, what happens to Joseph is he's taken into Egypt and he's sold as a slave. And you begin to ask this question, how is this fair? Like, God, where are you in this story? What did Joseph do to deserve this? I get it. He told about a dream he had. But if we're correct that dreams come from you, then you gave him this dream and he told about it. God, that's not fair. While he's there, 
He works really, really hard. And over time, he earns the respect of the guy named Potiphar. Potiphar is a really high official in Egypt. And he, eventually, Potiphar puts Joseph as like, in command of his whole house. Literally, everything was available to him, everything except one thing, and that's Potiphar's wife. And the problem is, Potiphar's wife keeps looking at Joey and going, how you doing? And um, <laughs> Joseph is like, no, I can't go there. And she keeps making these advances and making these advances and making these advances. And so we pick it up in uh, chapter 39, verse 8. It says, but he refused. With me in charge, he told Potiphar's wife, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Does that stand out to anybody else as weird? I mean, it's like, think about it. Just the structure of the sentence. It's setting you up to go somewhere. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. You're his wife. How then could I do such wicked thing as sin against you? You would think you would say Potiphar. How could I do that to Potiphar after all Potiphar has done for me? But see, this is the root of how we deal with suffering. In our suffering, we have to see, we have to believe that God is in it. That doesn't mean God's causing it, but God is with us. He's not left us. I don't have all the answers. I don't. I think there's a lot of hard texts that we ought to wrestle with, and this is one of them. This text gets harder for us later at the end of the story when God redeems all of the story, which we'll look at more next week. And, and Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So God gave him these dreams. Is God trying to create this situation? I don't know. It looks that way, though. But what I do know is Joseph understands that in the middle of his pain and in the middle of his suffering, no matter what, I am going to honor God. And that's a critical thing for us to grab onto because no matter what you're facing right now, whether it's prolonged suffering for days or weeks, or years or months, or whether you're at the beginning of something or you don't understand fair, unfair, what I know is if you don't have the attitude that I must do what is right in God's eyes, then you won't make the right next step. It's critical you get that. But because of that, he won't do what she wants him to do. And it says, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Like he's like, I gotta put some distance between me and her. But the problem is she wouldn't take no for an answer. And so one day he comes in and however she set this up, somehow she managed to get him in this right situation and she grabs hold of his cloak and I've seen and read different things. The cloak could have been his outer garment. A cloak literally could have been this thing he wore around his waist because he's, he's like always going around flexing his muscles. I don't know what it is, right? But she's got a hold of whatever it is. And he is so afraid. She's trying to take advantage of him. And he doesn't want to be seen in this moment as doing anything inappropriate. So he takes off running and leaves his cloak behind. Now, what that probably means is he ran out of the house either naked or almost completely naked. So when Joseph, ripped, dark, tanned Joseph, comes running out of the house naked and people see him, they go, Huh, that's Potiphar's house. That's Potiphar's servant. And all of a sudden, she's like, I've got a problem. So both she's bitter and she's got his cloak and there's a naked guy. People saw him. And so she decides, instead of like letting this blow over, come up with some excuse, she's gonna blame him. And she starts to say, he took advantage of me. He took advantage of me, which is not the truth. And Potiphar comes in and he's livid after all that he's done to bless Joseph. 
Well, of course he would be. You would be too. But that's not what happened. But who's going to believe the slave? So sure enough, they take Joseph, Potiphar does, and has him thrown in prison. And then it says, verse 20, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. See, hang on to that. Again, I've said, the book of Genesis doesn't say anything on accident. There's lots of things it could say. There's lots of gaps in the stories where lots of details that are left out. So when it says something, it's saying it on purpose. And it's saying that because no matter where you are, when you are suffering and you're going through it, and especially unjust suffering, I don't deserve this. It's not fair. God is with you. God showed him kindness and granted him favor. That's the word we get for blessing over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. In the eyes of the prison warden. As a result of this, a prison warden, basically, he, same thing happens to Joseph. It's a cycle that gets repeated. Now he's in prison and he's hated because of what he did to Potiphar's wife, even though he didn't do it. That's the belief. But he's in prison and he shows himself to be a man of integrity, a man of grit, a man of character. And he works hard. He proves himself faithful and God honors that. So the warden puts him in charge. So now he's managing the prison from inside the prison. It says the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. I am convinced that if people of faith will do the next right thing, you'll see the same pattern play out in your life. I don't know exactly what that means. Joseph is still caught in prison. But it just means that God is going to be with you, in you, for you, working things together for your good. If you were to look at a timeline, and nobody knows exactly, Joseph, from the moment that he's kidnapped by his brothers to the moment that things radically change in his story, there are years and years going by, possibly decades. We're not talking about a guy who suffered for a week or a month and things changed. We're talking about a guy who went through it and went through it for a really long time and held on to his character, his integrity, doing the right thing all the way through. And that's a huge takeaway. And what we learn in this is Jesus is most present in us when we are most pressed on all sides. That's, that's a truth you've got to believe. And it won't feel like that. But that right there might be text-worthy to a friend later today. Now, what I want to do is, basically what happens to Joseph's life next, and I don't have time to go into all the details, Basically, in that prison, he meets uh, two servants of the Pharaoh who are both thrown in prison, and both of them have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams. One of them gets killed. His interpretation comes correct. The other one gets released. His interpretation comes correct. And Joseph tells the one who gets released, hey, when you're back out there, tell Pharaoh about me. And he goes silent for years, for years. He doesn't hear anything, days, months. We don't know exactly how long. For a long, long time, nobody hears anything about him. Joseph is forgotten again. And I wonder if Joseph ever struggled in that prison, left behind, like all I've ever done is be faithful, but he believes that God is with him, so he hangs on, he doesn't quit. And then one day, Pharaoh has this terrible, terrible, terrible dream, and it's so vivid, he's scared. And just so happens, the guy who was released goes, you know, I met this guy when you threw me in prison that one time, I met this guy, and he interpreted my dream, maybe he can help you. And Jophus, Jophus, 
I did the same thing last service. Joseph is brought in and he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And eventually Pharaoh puts Joseph over second in command of the entire nation. And it's because of Joseph that Pharaoh becomes a rich, powerful, and Egypt becomes this major power on the world scene. Everybody over the next seven years has to come to Pharaoh in Egypt, actually come to Joseph to get food to feed themselves. So in some situations, people are coming in and they're trading him all their animals because they can't eat. What goes an animal if I can't feed the animal? And then they're trading him their land and then they're trading him themselves. Everybody becomes indentured servants of Egypt. The reason Egypt became a major powerhouse in the world is because of Joseph and what God did in the moment. And God was working through Joseph's pain to save the world. That's a critical thing to understand in just a moment. But now let's use Joseph as our our example, our story, and take a look at some New Testament passages that could guide us for when we're dealing with pain. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He's using this analogy of our bodies being like jars of clay. If you picture these uh, large kind of uh, pitcher jar pot things, and they put water in them a lot. You know, they're not necessarily perfect when you look at them. They may have uh, maybe cracks or chips of some sort. But as long as they hold the water, that's what's most important. And the water inside, or the wine, (laughs) if you're at Jesus' party, uh, inside is the thing that is like a treasure. It's a beauty, right? And part of what we're trying to get to is this idea of our bodies are breaking down. Our bodies aren't perfect. But they hold inside them a treasure of unbelievable value. And what is that? It's our faith in Jesus Christ. If you go back and read the rest of 2 Corinthians 4, you'll see this is the point that Paul's making. I'm I'm literally going through a really hard time. In fact, we'll get to that in just a moment. I'm going through some hard stuff, but in me is something greater than anything that I face in this world because Jesus is inside me. So I have the God of the universe inside me. I don't need to be healthy, rich, and wise in order to be joyful, or kind, or merciful, or good. I just need God inside me. But Paul's going through it. I mean, he talks about in this book, like, I've been beaten and shipwrecked and left for dead multiple times. I've been hungry and destitute and abandoned and alone and afraid multiple times. And that's why he says here, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Again, you picture this, this, this clay pot of some sort, and if you're putting pressure on other, every side of it, yeah, it feels like at any moment it's gonna break, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. We're perplexed, but not in despair. This really is, the word perplexed really is the best word for the Greek word here, but it's not a word that we use a whole lot in English, but I think it's so fitting here because this word perplexed, it really means I'm confused by what I'm experiencing. And when you're going through suffering, that's exactly what goes through our minds. God, I don't understand, right? How many times have you said that? Where are you? Why is this happening to me? And Paul's saying, I get it. I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Paul's going, every town I go to, I get arrested, beat up, and thrown in jail. So bad things are happening to me, but I know God hasn't left me. You know, what's interesting is Paul actually writes in his New Testament books about the church abandoning him. In fact, 
He even talks in some of his letters. He's like, guys, I needed you. Where are you? Send someone to help me and comfort me. But he always comes back to, but I know God provided for all my needs. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed, right? You could hit the clay pot and a piece might fall off, but I'm still standing. And I still have this treasure inside me, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he goes on. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. That right there, whoo, that's a profound statement. Because what Paul's trying to get to is when I wonder about suffering, the person that I look to the most is Jesus Christ. It's not even myself. Because Jesus is literally the only human in the history of the world who could say he's done nothing wrong. He didn't deserve any of what happened to him. Yet Jesus never shook his fist at God. Ah, I don't trust you anymore. He cries out in anguish and he cries out for understanding and he begs God to do another path in the garden. But in faith, he keeps taking the next right step. So we see his humanity. But we also see that he is unbelievably faithful all the way to the end. And Paul's saying, if God would allow his one and only son, who literally has never done anything wrong, you cannot argue in Jesus' situation, he deserved it. You can't. And if he allowed him to go through suffering, then when we go through suffering, we ought to think about that same thing, that I've probably done some things that I deserve. I've probably done some things that, you know, maybe I don't deserve all the things that happened to me, but some things I've done weren't all that honorable. And I'm being honest, that's me. Like, I've done some things that I'm not proud of. Jesus has never done that. And yet God let him suffer. And in doing that, when he raised him from the dead, I can look at Jesus and say, you understand my pain. And I have you inside me. That's why Joseph reveals two kinds of suffering to us. Number one, suffering from consequences of bad decisions. If you go back to Joseph's story, we just realize there's a lot of bad things that have happened. If his uh, uncle hadn't deceived his dad, if his dad hadn't played favorites, if, 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 if the brothers hadn't this, if he hadn't told about the, you know, if, 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 if. And in this life, bad things are gonna happen to you because people make bad decisions. They drink when they drive. They drink when they fly. Perhaps they drink when they're doing surgery. Perhaps somebody invested money or lied to you or deceived you or cheated you or didn't keep a commitment or a vow, or were angry, or whatever it might be. And when that happens, it's important that we identify evil as evil, and we don't shake our fist at God and say, God, why are you? Evil people do evil things in the world. And God has the chessboard, so to speak, that he has to work with, and he is moving all things together for the good of those who love him. But that doesn't mean bad things aren't gonna happen because you are in a battleground between good and evil. But the second thing that we see in Joseph's suffering is that suffering for good on behalf of Christ, I should say, points us to Christ himself. In each of these low moments in Joseph's story, followed by a high, followed by a low, followed by a high, followed by a low, what we see is when Joseph suffers well, he actually points us back to Christ. I mean, just think about this for a minute. If you just break down Joseph's story, big arc, and you can do this with a lot of the characters of Genesis. But you have a son, who should have been the only son, if you just take out all the other brothers that came from deception and other things. But you've got a son, and he's cherished, and he is loved, and he is celebrated by his daddy. 
And he ends up being treated harshly by other people. In prison, at a low spot, he is faithful and holds on in faith to God. And eventually, when it looks like the story is over for him, he is raised up to a position of command and power. Now take that same story, just overlap it with the gospel. Jesus, who is God's only son, who came down here dressed in the glory and in the love of the Father in heaven, who at his baptism, the Father even says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I actually got to visit Caiaphas's basement in February this year in Israel, where we saw where Jesus was chained up and held overnight while they were awaiting his trial. And eventually, his, he had a crown of thorns placed on his head as he was beaten and flogged and hands and feet pierced and hung on a tree. But when he went down to the lowest of lows, the death itself, God raised him from the dead that he would reign over all. See, Joseph's story reminds us of Jesus' story, and the same can be true for us. So that when we go through pain and when we go through suffering, God can use it to point others to Jesus. So that your coworkers and your friends and your family, when they see you suffer well, it actually leads them to faith. Paul says this in 2 Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, my endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? You can read about all those in the book of Acts. The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a whole sermon in itself right there. Jesus, we'll talk about this next year when we get into the book of Luke. Jesus, at one point, he's calling disciples to follow him. People who are hearing the word of God and they're trying to decide, do I believe or do I not? And he literally says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, when you follow me, you need to consider the cost. You need to think about what it's gonna cost you to follow me. Following me doesn't mean you're gonna get handsome, rich, and wise. It doesn't mean you're gonna get the spouse of your dreams. Following me is going to hurt at times. Are you in? If, if you are never experiencing persecution for your faith, it's quite possible your faith isn't being as radical as God is calling you to be. Following after Jesus means having beliefs that this world thinks are absolutely nuts and crazy. I get it, trust me. But following after Jesus is a call out not to look like and be like the world, but to live differently. And it won't make sense. That's okay. God's watching. In fact, Paul goes on and he says, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I love that. What he's trying to say is, again, we're in this battlefield. And people who are not the people of God, they're going to lie to each other. They're going to deceive each other. They're going to cheat each other. That's what they're going to do. It makes business in this world very difficult because you never know if anybody's being completely honest with you or not. But it is what it is. That's what happens in this world. But not for those of you who want to follow Jesus. For those of you who want to follow Jesus, you be different. In fact, he goes on. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Now, he's writing this letter to a protege, a guy he's mentoring. His name is Timothy. And he's writing all this. He's saying, look, you were a little man. You were raised by a mama and a grandma who loved Jesus. Now, your, your dad, he was not part of the picture. That's a powerful statement right there. But you hang on to the truth that you were always told about Jesus. Don't act like the world acts. Don't think like the world thinks. Let these things transform you. Let the scriptures of God change you. And what we find when we come to the scriptures, sometimes it just encourages us. And sometimes it offends us. I don't know about you. I often get offended by God's word before I have to deliver it to you. And I'm like, ah, do we have to talk about that one, God? I like my dysfunction sometimes. Like, I don't want to mess with it. That was supposed to be funnier than it is. That's okay. Somebody told me I was quirky before the service and they love me anyway. I'm like, that's all right. Because look, here's the next thing that Paul says to Timothy. All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God's word, all of it, man, the scriptures, they're God-breathed. He whispered these. Why? So that when we need confronted, we'd be confronted, and we need corrected, we'd get corrected. And when we're just ignorant, honestly, we're naive, we don't know any better, we could get training because all of it is for our benefit so that we may be prepared to do the work that God wants us to do. And is it possible that whatever difficult or suffering season you may be going through, somebody you know and love is going through, is it possible that this is actually next, God's next training or classroom to grow you into a person more like his son? Because when you suffer well, you become like Jesus. And that's a really good thing. So let me close with this last passage from Peter. First Peter is written all to a group of people who are suffering. And Peter says this, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent he is directly drawing on the story of Genesis and even later Exodus when he says you are foreigners here, foreigners. The whole idea is this world is not our home and we're just passing through. Amen. We're to see ourselves as at a stopping point, just a brief stopover. That's it. It's a short span, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is. It's a brief stopover. But consequently, we want to live our lives in reverent fear because we understand this world, we don't want to get too comfortable. For you know, he says, that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And what he's trying to say is God bought you with a price. And he didn't hand over gold or silver. He made all those things. They don't mean anything. No, no, no. He bought you with something far more valuable, his son, Jesus. You belong to him. So as somebody who belongs to him, you have unbelievable value and worth. God sees you. He knows. So if he's willing to let his one and only son go through pain, he may let you go through pain. But he's no less good. He's already shown that through his son. Peter goes on and he says, he is Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. And that may be more than anything else, maybe what you need to take away. When you go through a difficult time, when you go through suffering, when you go through something that's just not fair, you can shake a fist at God 
or you can believe that this is not the end of your story. That there's more for God to write. And the hardest part is in trusting that God is writing it and he'll choose the timing of the writing. I'll never forget, and I don't have the permission to say who, but a godly woman in the faith, older than me, she prayed for years for God to take a disease away from someone she loved. And that person died. And at first she was angry at God. Like, God, I pray, like, do you just not hear? Do you just not care? And in a quiet moment, God whispered to them, I answered every single one of your prayers. They are pain-free right now. There's no more suffering for them. I just didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted and when you wanted. And see, I know this isn't easy and I may never see some of you again because of the hardness of this message, but that's called faith. Trusting that my life is in God's hands and whatever he desires, he's gonna work it together for the good of those who love him. So my entire job today is to wake up and do the next right thing. And one day I won't wake up anymore. And when I open my eyes on that day, I'll open my eyes to him. And all the pain and all the suffering will be wiped away with his finger. And that's why when Peter says, your faith and hope are in God, when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not the way we speak of hope. Hope in this sense stands with absolute confidence that God is who he said he is and he will do everything he has promised he will do. My hope is that this world is not the end. There is more to be written in this story. So therefore, since I know one day God is absolutely gonna make all things good, if nothing else changes, I can hang on to God because I'm looking forward to a day when he will come and make all things new. And that fuels me today to trust him. Because the key to suffering is to hang on to Jesus because Jesus is hanging on to you. What I wanna do is lead us right into communion now. Because when you eat this bread and you take this juice, you are literally, realize this, you are eating and drinking the suffering of God. But when you eat it and you drink it today, I want you to see a deep or profound connection between whatever is in your story and his. So listen, real quick, if you are going through it, whatever it is right now, and you're feeling it, and take this communion time to thank Jesus for suffering well all the way to the end. He's a great example for us to follow and ask him to do something in you that you couldn't do for yourself. God, give me the courage. Give me the strength. Give me the grit. Give me the patience. Give me the joy, God, to keep going, to push through this moment. And may I yet see the faithfulness of God in the land of the living. Now, maybe as you're taking this today, you're going, I've got nothing going on in my life. I I feel bad. I know other people are. Then ask God for a name. And when God puts a name on your mind, a family member, a friend, a coworker, neighbor, whatever, two things, pray for them. Right now in communion, pray for them. God bless them. Give me the opportunity to share your hope and your message with them. And then when you leave here, don't consider it over. Consider the good work that God called you here on this Sunday to take part in is to go love them and serve them in some way or another. Maybe go do their leaves, cut their grass, buy them a gift card, spend an hour listening to them, visit them, do something. 
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know where this message lands. It lands in so many places. So God, would you just come and meet us right now? For my brothers and sisters who are suffering, God, would you help them get rid of the lie that somehow they've earned this or this is somehow your punishment for them or for their children for something stupid that somebody else did somewhere. Instead, God, would you help them to see that you are a good father, compassionate and kind, showing love to a thousand generations to those who love you. God, you are literally rewriting the story of sin and evil in this world, including our dumb decisions and others' dumb decisions. And so God, help us then to trust you because sometimes we struggle. And God, I pray right now that you would meet us. God, and if we aren't in a season of suffering, would you give us a name? Would you give us wisdom or insight to know what we can do to love or serve somebody else going through it and point them to you? Thank you for being a faithful father to us. In Jesus' name.